2: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The CIA drone program has long been shrouded in secrecy. All around the world, there are covert bases where military drones, armed with high-tech sensors and precision missiles, are launched on missions to kill the enemies of the United States. Nowhere is safe. But where did this practice begin? Well, I'm your host James Rogers, and to explore the surprising origins of the CIA drone program, I've invited Professor Chris Fuller onto the Warfare Podcast as part of our special CIA Month. Chris is the author of See It, Shoot It, the secret history of the lethal CIA drone program, and by drawing on his original research, we hear about the origins of the CIA's attempts to kill Gaddafi with drones in the 80s, all the way through to the rise of modern high-tech killer drones that we see all around the world today. Enjoy. Hi Chris, welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing?
3: Good, thank you. Thank you for the invitation.
2: No, not a problem at all. I I actually can't believe, seeing as you work on drones and the history of drones, it seems almost remarkable that we have never met in person.
3: We've been circling around one another in the same areas, clearly, but this is the moment, right? (laughs) So this is either going to show that it's been a tragedy we haven't met before, or that it's been a good thing that our views have not collided on this topic.
2: Yeah, this could be a drone dogfight. We're circling in the skies for years, and now we've got our air-to-air missiles. We could disagree massively. I don't think that's going to be the case. I've read your book, See It, Shoot It, and that's why I've invited you on the podcast. So, you know, I'm a bit of a sycophant here. I've got you on, and we're going to go through this history in some good detail, this fascinating history. Now, as our listeners know, it is CIA month here on the Warfare Podcast, and we've gone all the ways, those dark days of the Cold War, and we're bringing it right up to date, I guess today, looking at the history of the CIA drone program. Now, a lot of people will think that the CIA drone programme emerged after 9-11 to hunt down terrorists all around the world. But it goes back a bit further than that, doesn't it? We can go back to, I don't know, the Reagan administration?
3: Yes. So, I mean, this is an interesting kind of point of divergence, I think, amongst quite a few scholars that explored drones and that you can come at this from multiple ways. You know, if you wanted to come at this from a kind of Air Force perspective, then you might argue that the roots are actually found in Vietnam, and they're a kind of technologists that make that argument. As you rightly point out, from a kind of international relations and a kind of international law perspective, it's largely seen as a product of 9-11. But I think if you want that focus on the CIA, and you want to pay attention to when does the CIA get into the drone game, then yes, I would argue it's actually, it's still counterterrorism efforts, but it's those that sit right there in the early 80s with the Reagan administration following this kind of view of unleashing the CIA and trying to use them as a a new way to counter this fairly recently emergent threat of international terrorism. Okay, so what is it that sparks this interest
2: in drones as a panacea to the threat of terrorism? Because, you know, in my work, i would take it back to 1917 and the rise of the first drones used in war by the United States. But we do know, like you say, that in Vietnam, they were used en masse for the first time. You had those, were they lightning bugs that would act as loyal wingmen off the sides of, of piloted bomber aircraft and would collect loads of intelligence, but also have that really clever frequency capture mechanism that would any missiles coming from the ground any air defense systems they would send them up towards the piloted aircraft the drones that were off the side of these aircraft would pick up that frequency and before they were annihilated by the missile would send that frequency to the pilot who would then capture it and reprogram their air defense system making it better so they would avoid missiles being fired at them so i mean we're already going off on a tangent here sorry right but but
3: but you see that that sort of technological sophistication that's what puts the cia's program that that we're discussing here in a completely different category And, and that's why i you know personally why i kind of differentiated between these because that's kind of cutting edge technology and drones are being used in that sort of way the cia's program is completely different to that it's It's a real kind of off the shelf, strapping things together and and trying to come up with a kind of cheap and simple solution to a, a problem that they're being presented with. And I think that the roots of that problem, like so many things during the Reagan administration, come down to the gulf between Reagan's rhetoric and then the actual policies that he is willing to endorse and pursue. And in this case, when it comes to terrorism, The Gulf is that Reagan talks an incredibly strong, hard line on terrorism. You know, he's got very fiery rhetoric. Carter, that came before him, you know, the reason the Iranian hostage crisis was such a problem is Carter was so weak. He was unwilling to confront terrorism. You know, Reagan makes a lot of this. But then when he actually comes into office, he's much less willing to commit any sort of military force to deal with terrorism because his primary objective for the military is an enormous arms build-up. You know, he wants to rehabilitate the military after Vietnam. His Secretary of Defense, Caspar Weinberger, sees that as his mission. And the last thing you want to do if you want to rehabilitate your military is start getting them stuck into counter-terrorism operations that could be very high risk, could end up with lots of collateral damage. You know, The very nature of terrorist groups and where they tend to hide out means that, engaging them is incredibly difficult. And, you know, there's still this memory in the Pentagon of Operation Eagle Claw when Delta Force's first outing that ends up with eight American casualties, their bodies left in the desert for the Iranian authorities to discover in this this kind of failed rescue operation. So the Pentagon doesn't want anything to do with using the military. The Secretary of Defense doesn't really want anything to do with this. The president isn't really behind it. On the other hand, the Secretary of State, George Schultz he really believes that actually interpreting Reagan's strong line on terrorism means that what the United States needs to do is follow in the footsteps of Israel. You know, they need special forces rage. They need to be willing to use preemptive force against terrorists. And he kind of points out in a number of public speeches, you know, that there will be collateral damage. There will be costs to this this is what it requires. And essentially, because Reagan isn't really willing to step between these two big figures in his administration, Weinberger and Schultz, there's a vacuum, you know, who's gonna deal with this? And is so often the case when there's not a diplomatic solution and when there's not a military solution, this is when things tend to fall on the CIA. And so this is how they kind of inherit this counterterrorism mission, William Casey is a director at the time. You know, if we're going to talk about CIA history, well, Casey is a former OSS man himself. So he knows risk taking. He knows how to kind of exist on the fringes of legal authorities. He became director of the CIA with this mission to unleash an agency that had been perceived as having been held back by the results of numerous committees, including the church committee hearings, which had essentially put all sorts of new rules and regulations in place. And so with no obvious solution of how are you going to deal with terrorists, this becomes the CIA's job under William Casey. And so how much do
2: drones become the spearhead of this attempt to try and combat terrorism? Are they something that's merely toyed with in the early days, or are they actually deployed on successful missions?
3: The fact that we associate them so much with post 9-11, I think is an early clue that this doesn't really take off in the way that is hoped for. But what they do do is they they set some important precedents and get ideas in place that then tick along so that by the time opposition to this kind of approach is just blown away after 9-11, they can move on this very rapidly. So the reason they become attractive is when you don't have the Pentagon's support for counterterrorism missions, that immediately rules out Delta Force and the fairly nascent Joint Special Operations Forces. There are some efforts to try to deploy these forces, but essentially these are blocked by Caspar Weinberger. So, you know, one of his, in a public speech, he delivers something that becomes known as the Weinberger Doctrine and essentially It's very similar to those that would be familiar with the Powell Doctrine of the Gulf War. Um, The Powell Doctrine is essentially just a continuation of the Weinberger Doctrine. It argues the only way you can use military force is en masse, as a sledgehammer. If you want to use it, you have to go in with enormous forces, force protection, a complete and open discussion with the public, so you have their hearts and minds on side. It's the opposite of Vietnam, right? No incremental upticks in forces, no measures designed to try to curtail the use of force or kind of micromanagement from the White House. It's all just all or nothing. The Gulf War would be a great example of Powell Doctrine and Weinberger Doctrine. So that precludes any sort of small-scale counterterrorism mission. And there's no real diplomatic solution to this because these state-sponsored terrorist groups aren't interested in entering into negotiations. So the CIA is, they're kind of fishing around for options. Now, the first option they go with is very much in line with the Reagan doctrine, which is the idea of using proxy forces to do your fighting for you. And, you know, some scholars have kind of argued, well, the Reagan doctrine was all about using indigenous people so that there's no risk to American lives. But I would argue that the Reagan doctrine is a consequence of this arms buildup and the Weinberger doctrine. If you're not willing to use your military because you don't want them to be in grey areas and sticky situations, then the Reagan administration ends up using local forces if it can. So whether that's a Mujahideen in Afghanistan or whether that is groups like the Contras in Latin America, they're a solution to the fact you're trying not to use the military. So they try this in counterterrorism terms. So in Lebanon early on, they approach the G2 intelligence agency there and they essentially ask them if they can orchestrate a mission to neutralise a Hezbollah leader. And what ends up happening is a large-scale car bombing of an apartment complex, which kills, estimates put it anywhere between 50 and, and 250 civilians. It fails to get the target, and worse still for the United States, this attack is immediately connected to them. A banner is held from the wreckage of the apartment complex, saying, made in the USA. And there's a clear international condemnation of the United States here. And under investigation, what's found is that while the CIA hadn't directly authorized or wasn't directly connected to this car bombing, essentially by approaching these proxies and not really having any method or checks and balances over their practices, they were found to be culpable for this by, an internal investigation and an investigation by the Senate. So what it revealed is counterterrorism needs nuance, it needs precision, it needs discipline, and it's not really something that you can rely upon foreign proxies to do for you. So once foreign proxies are removed and the military option isn't there, they're fishing around for another alternative. And this is when the idea of perhaps using drones starts to emerge. It comes from the early Counterterrorism Center. The Counterterrorism Center is what's called a fusion center, it brings together staff from the various branches of the CIA. So you have operations, and you have science and technology, and you have analysts all working together. And it's those science and technology teams that make this proposal that perhaps they could use some sort of remote aircraft to deliver explosives or to deliver rockets to these individuals, to to terrorists, as some kind of precise method. So when proxy groups
2: are too unreliable, when the humans on the ground can't be trusted, you start to turn to these robots that could be controlled either from a few hundred miles away or, in the end, as we know, from thousands of miles away. So what sort of technologies are we talking about here? Are these things that the CIA are trying to put together themselves? Are they drawing upon Israeli technology? Are they doing the same as the US Air Force? Are they just waiting and hoping on the pioneer that later becomes the predator system? What are they experimenting with?
3: At this earliest stage... One of the things that the Counterterrorism Centre and its founder, this individual named Dwayne Claridge, who had kind of cut his teeth in Latin America, quite a controversial figure connected to the sponsorship and the training of the Contra rebels over there. One thing he wanted is he wanted the Counterterrorism Centre to be able to function on a very tight budget and with uh, he wanted it to be quick and agile. So he had this sense that the technology needed to be quick off the shelf things. And so the initial drones that they're talking about here are essentially remote control aircraft. And they just bolt technology to them. So in terms of the lethal portion, one of the early versions of this under something called the Eagle program was a remote control aircraft with C4 explosives and shrapnel attached to it. And a target that they're planning to use this on is uh, Muammar Gaddafi. So, the United States had actually, despite the Weinberger doctrine, there had actually been the use of military force against Gaddafi because of the nature of one of the terrorist attacks he had been connected to. The NSA had intercepted communications that had shown that a bombing that took place in La Belle Discotheque in West Berlin, in fact, had been authorised by Gaddafi and his government. And because that targeted... A nightclub that was frequented by American service personnel, that essentially created enough pressure that even Caspar Weinberger wasn't able to deny the use of military in the retaliation that Reagan eventually authorised. That operation was known as El Dorado Canyon. The problem with this is the operation fails to hit Gaddafi, whose home had been identified as a terrorist command and control centre. So that had authorised the targeting of Gaddafi despite the fact he was a head of state but there had been significant collateral damage from this raid because using F-111s with heavy munitions when your targets are hiding out in cities in Libya these are even using high-tech technology these weren't precise enough weapons to target individuals in this sense and also one of the aircraft was shot down as well so that was actually widely regarded as, as quite unsuccessful It didn't prevent further terrorist attacks. We can just point towards the Lockerbie tragedy, for example, as an example that Libya wasn't put off from terrorist usage by this. And the continued funding of the IRA. Indeed. So it didn't work as a deterrent factor. It created collateral damage. It didn't get its primary target. And it created a significant backlash from the international community. So the one time aircraft were used in this way, this was unacceptable. So the CTC has this mission of trying to get rid of Gaddafi. Well, they also can't shoot him because after the church committee hearings, there's a clear assassination ban on the CIA. They are not allowed themselves to engage in this, nor are they allowed to sponsor others to engage in something like that that would be deemed an assassination. And so the adoption of a drone here is trying to find the legal wriggle room that exists somewhere between an airstrike that's now been identified as too cumbersome too large too much collateral damage and too much international backlash but something between that and a sniper's bullet and so the idea is that's kind of put forward what if we could fly a small remote control aircraft into Gaddafi's tent for example and detonate it when he's out in a tent or in his garden somewhere in his home and use it so it sits somewhere between an airstrike and an assassination. And that's the hope, and that program is developed, it's tested. The second part of that same program, the Eagle program, relates to the hostage crisis. So these drones aren't just like the lethal function of drones, they also are like the initial reconnaissance version of drones. So before the Predator has a Hellfire missile strapped to it, when it starts as a under the R category, as a reconnaissance aircraft, this initial Eagle program drone that the CIA had in the 80s had the job of trying to find the hostages that were being held in Beirut. So as well as attaching explosives to these drones, the science and technology staff in the, the CTC attached thermal image cameras to these drones. And the idea was they would fly around downtown Beirut and so that they could identify where the hostages were. And once they knew where the hostages were, that would then be enough evidence to be able to authorise a raid, to get the Pentagon to sign off and agree to let Delta Force and Joint Special Operations be unleashed again with this aerial support. So this first drone sits somewhere between an armed drone and a reconnaissance drone. But it's all made with off-the-shelf technology. Nothing here is custom-made for this program. They're just things that are bolted together on the cheap and on the fly.
2: You see, there's so much to unpack there. I mean, first of all, you can see that drones are the perfect loophole that the CIA needed to continue to carry out its counter-terrorism missions. Now the next thing of course is you can see so many parallels with today. You can see the targeting of a state actor just like you saw with Soleimani in 2020, the head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps who was killed by a drone strike, a CIA drone strike I believe, authorised by the Trump administration. So you can see the early days of that starting to creep in and of course today when you look at drones that are spreading across the world they're not often the high-tech military systems that we see but they're often converted off-the-shelf systems. We call them COTS, we call them commercial off-the-shelf drones, and they're used by terrorist groups as well as state entities. But taking us back to that moment where Gaddafi is literally in the crosshairs of these CIA primitive early drones, are there any successes there? I mean we know of course that Gaddafi isn't killed by a drone strike, he dies crawling through a tunnel after the 2011 removal of him from power, holding his golden gun, and everything else from that is history. But are there any successes from this early program that that mean that the CIA know that there is something quite, quite important here, that they want to invest in a lot, something that shows us that it's going to be an incredibly important function for the CIA in the future?
3: There's a big gap for the CIA here, actually. There's not a smooth flow from these early developments to them eventually running a full program. But before we get to that, I think it is worth pointing out there is actually a connection to the eventual evolution of this drone program and Gaddafi, in that you're absolutely right. You know, we know he's dragged out from a pipe that he's hiding in and he's, he's captured by the rebels. But actually, when his convoy tries to flee CERT, where he's hiding, it's a predator drone that is on station above that compound, that identifies him and follows the compound and then guides in the airstrike that leads to him fleeing from the vehicle convoy and hiding in the pipes. So eventually the technology that Gaddafi himself triggers the development of through this bombing in Germany does come to full development and maturation at this point and then plays a role in his inability to flee. That permanent air coverage is provided by a Predator drone. So he does actually play a you know a role in kicking off the technology that contributes to his demise by guiding in that airstrike that makes him have to flee. So there is a long, arcing story there. There's a long, arcing karma to the conduct, yeah. But in terms of the reason that you have this gap with the CIA... Ultimately, it comes down to Iran-Contra. There's a real paradox here with the way that CIA drone development kind of occurred. So the reason you had Dwayne Claridge selected to lead the CTC is because he was a risk taker. He had already been a very controversial figure for his role in the publication of a, a manual that guided the Contras on kind of guerrilla warfare. And this elements of this manual had been leaked and created a scandal in the the mid 80s because it quite clearly called for the assassination of state officials. It gave guidance on how to do this. It was riding very closely alongside the assassination ban that both Gerald Ford and Ronald Reagan had uh, supported this assassination ban through executive orders. But this is why Dwayne Claridge had been selected, because the view of the likes of George Schultz and William Casey was, if you're going to combat terrorism, you're gonna to have to take the gloves off. It's a bloody business and it's gonna be messy. And that's why he was their kind of chosen man. But that same recklessness is the sort of thing that led to Oliver North, who was a big supporter of these counter-terrorism approaches in the National Security Council. He, his responsibility was low intensity warfare, which terrorism fell under. So Oliver North, William Casey, Dwayne Claridge, all of these figures that were interested in developing aggressive methods for countering terrorists were also involved in the Iran-Contra program. So the willingness to push the rules and engage right on the um, limits of what is legally acceptable might have led to these innovative solutions for dealing with terrorists. But it also is the sort of thing that led to this program whereby they are illegally providing arms to Iran in return for negotiations to try to free the hostages from Beirut and then taking that money and bypassing the Boland Amendment that Congress has put on, essentially saying you cannot give any more arms and aid to groups that have formed death squads that we know are in breach of all sorts of human rights and using that to illegally funnel money to these individuals. So what Iran-Contra does is it essentially leads to a whole core of individuals in the CTC being removed from the CIA, including Dwayne Claridge. William Casey would have been one of these individuals. He is due to testify to Congress and hearings about this, but ends up has an enormous stroke from a brain tumour and never recovers from that. And essentially, the the kind of dynamic risk-taking core of the CTC is wiped out. By this scandal. And so the Eagle program and all of those early ideas of finding something that exists in that gray area between assassination and an airstrike, that ceases, that comes to an end. The other connection to Iran-Contra and the CIA here, however, are actually an entrepreneurial pair of brothers, the Blue Brothers, end up buying General Atomics, which is the, the company many people will probably be aware of that eventually ends up producing the Predator and the Reaper drones, probably the most famous drones here and definitely the backbone of the CIA's contemporary drone campaign. And there's a very interesting but slightly complicated connection as to how the CIA ends up linked to these and, and what their role in Iran-Contra is. So explaining exactly what the relationship between these Blue Brothers and Iran-Contra and and kind of future drone programming, it's quite a messy tale. We can go into it if you think there's scope for that, but I'll leave this to you.
2: I think there's scope for it. The history of drones is a messy business and we're happy to get our hands dirty. So take us through this history, Chris.
3: Okay, so the Blue Brothers are a pair of entrepreneurs who shortly after graduating from Yale, managed to travel around Latin America essentially for free, paid for by Life magazine as their pilots. So they take aerial photography and these get published in Life magazine. And in return, they get to tour around Latin America. And there they spot this business opportunity in Nicaragua by setting up a fruit ripening business. Eventually they return back to the United States, the business continues, they diversify their portfolio, they pick up the family business in real estate and they become increasingly wealthy. But when there is a communist revolution in Nicaragua, they are outraged by this. They are hard line anti-communist and they want something to be done about this. They wanna see if they can use their assets, their resources, their contacts to do something about this. Now, I've never managed to fully unpick just how formally connected to the CIA they are, but one of the companies they buy, General Atomics, they essentially retool this engineering company with an idea about using a remotely piloted drone as a way of harming the Sandinista government, the communist government in Nicaragua. And the idea is that these remotely piloted drones could function like small-scale cruise missiles, that they can be GPS guided to destroy oil supplies and grain supplies and essentially economically ruin the government. And the first prototype of this drone that General Atomics creates is actually called Predator. It's not the Predator that General Atomics eventually makes that we would recognize as the post-9-11 or the, the drone that flies over Kosovo in the late 1990s, it shares the same name. Again, the plan never comes to fruition, partly because the drone isn't very good, because General Atomics uh, doesn't really have any experience in aeronautical engineering at the time that they purchase it, and also because of Iran-Contra. Once that scandal breaks, there's no way that the United States is going to be able to fly remotely piloted aircraft to destroy the resources of the Sandinista government. But again, what's really interesting here is Latin America and the communist takeover in Nicaragua brings together these key individuals. You know, William Casey, Dwayne Claridge, Oliver North and the Blue Brothers are all originators of drone technology. And what brings them together is this hardcore, arguably quite out of date perspective on communism that this is some sort of domino theory. It cannot be allowed to rest. You must combat at all costs the the Sandinista government. And, you know, history bears out that this was an old Cold Warrior mindset, that there was no Latin American domino theory here for them. But that old-fashioned perspective brings together these key individuals who all, while holding this old-fashioned perspective on the Cold War, had a cutting-edge perspective on counterterrorism, But the key paradox is they undermine their whole approach themselves. It's because of their actions that aggressive counter-terrorism is then put on the back shelf for essentially the next decade.
2: OK, so the Sandinistas are not the group that are first targeted by CIA drone strikes. But you've got General Atomics at this point that has got this fledgling drone programme on the go. You've got the Predator drone that's there, although it's not the one that we see much later. Do the Blue Brothers see this as something that could be a, a potentially you know, useful technology in the future? Do they continue to invest in expertise, in know-how, to try and make this technology that we see in the future? Is it General Atomics, off the back of all of this, that become the pioneer of drone technologies?
1: It is.
3: Well, it's General Atomics supported by, as, as so many of these kind of technological innovations are, supported by DARPA so the Defence Advanced Research Project Agency. There had been, well, as you mentioned at the beginning, there had been these developments in drone technology from the Air Force. The Army had been developing their own through the 1990s. This Aquila program that was meant to help guide artillery and, and they were exploring loitering munitions. But essentially, these programs had all become quite expensive. They hadn't really delivered very much that the ideas were running ahead of the technological capabilities and so in the 1990s there's a, a big pentagon review of these drone programs that have been going on on the, the kind of official pentagon side and a lot of the funding is pulled out and many of those programs are shut down they're seen as quite unsuccessful and they're shut down but the blue brothers continue with this quite far sighted view that once you can nail the high endurance of a drone and you can get the GPS systems working, that this is definitely going to be a future technology. And so even though money is being pulled out of this and programs are being shut down left, right and centre, the blues persist. And one of the companies that has suffered from this withdrawal of funding is a company called Leading Systems Incorporated, run by a very gifted Israeli-American citizen named Abe Karim. And uh, since his youth, Karim had been developing high-endurance gliders and aircraft that essentially could stay with very light airframes, airborne for a very long time. And even though his company goes bust, General Atomics, under the guidance of the Blues, acquire LSI and mock-ups of Abe Karim's drone, And along with that, 11 of his staff as well. And it's that that gives them a kind of leap forward in drone technology. That by acquiring this gifted individual, this engineer and his team and their technology, uh, which they buy for a pretty cheap price from Hughes, they essentially are able to then take advantage of DARPA funding, pots of money that DARPA is making available to companies that can develop High endurance, medium altitude drones. And it's there that we see the development of the, the predator as we would recognize it, the, the predator that becomes famous after 9 11. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb.
2: And on my podcast, Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, we talk about everything.
0: From what
3: Queen-Consort Camilla could learn from the Renaissance... Really, when we
0: begin to look at Queen-Consorts, we notice that there's a lot of ways that women could have authority through their relationship with the King. To how you should never upstage Henry VIII... You'd have been a very unwise individual turning up to court, probably with a larger codpiece than the King, I
2: suspect. From the real Matawaka, better known as Pocahontas. She's brought and presented
0: to the King and Queen as this shining example of what we could achieve. To how to tell someone to get lost. You could say, turd in your teeth. In other words, not just the tutors, but most definitely also the tutors. Twice a week,
2: every week. Subscribe now to Not Just the Tutors from History Hit, wherever you get your
0: podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side, helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature?
2: Now we're getting up to more towards the modern period, the kind of current world of drone warfare. And just so our listeners know, Abe Karim is kind of known as the pioneer, the father. Of drones and armed drones in terms of their development in the modern area, especially their use post-Cold War. And I suppose it's here that we move into that period where the Predator is first deployed, right? First in its unarmed capacity and then in its armed capacity. And it reminds me of that quote by Jim Woolsey, who was the director of the CIA. Correct me if I'm wrong, Chris. And he said that we have slain a large dragon But we now live in a jungle filled with a bewildering variety of poisonous snakes. And in many ways, the dragon was easier to keep track of. And so as we see these drone technologies rise up in the post-Cold War era, did the CIA see the drone as a way to take out those poisonous snakes now the dragon was gone?
3: Again, not straight away. I mean, you know, Woolsey's quote there, it's interesting because one of the things he's trying to do is stave off budget cuts. There's a lot of the sense that, well, the Cold War's over, there's a peace dividend. I mean, there are even debates about whether the United States even still needs a CIA. Some of those debates are, you know, mostly academic, but it is a topic. It's a topic being discussed, how much of the Cold War infrastructure needs to remain. And so on one hand, he's absolutely correct. And, you know, the events of 9-11 kind of bear that out, that there are these kind of dangerous threats lurking out there. But on the other, some of that is rhetoric designed to, you know, kind of protect budgets and keep kind of legacy programs running. He's
2: creating a new enemy of the United States just to make sure he can keep his agency well stocked in terms of the coffers.
3: That's right. That's right. But I mean, the CIA definitely has a purpose here because one of the things that comes clear and one of the ways that the United States justifies the continued uh, preponderance of power that it has to the international community is through and it's worded in various ways george hw bush words it as the new world order this kind of you know the united states as a global policeman and the gulf war is an example of that in which he openly speaks about the rule of the jungle will not be acceptable you know nations will need to abide by international law and, and follow the will and the guidance of the united nations and under Clinton, the wording's slightly different, but essentially it's these ideas of engagement and expansion that the United States is going to expand NATO, it's going to kind of keep policing. And where we really see drones function here and, and the CIA's role, again, it's got nothing to do with counterterrorism at this stage. It's much more to do with those original roots of drones that you were mentioning, those kind of Vietnam routes, those warfare routes, in that, what the CIA is charged with is helping US forces where air power is now the absolute backbone of the US military. After this decade of arms buildup from Reagan, you know, the, the first Gulf War was the example of this massive use of air power and then rolling into the US interventions along with NATO in the Balkans in 1995 and in Kosovo in 1999, The responsibility of the CIA is to provide the targeting data for this air power, to find the targets. And one of the problems they're having is that satellites suffer from basic problems like cloud cover and aircraft. Well, they're still very good anti-aircraft systems. So if you want to fly low for reconnaissance purposes, you run the risk of being shot down. And the opponents are pretty good. You know, the... Serb forces and Iraqi forces become very good at hiding, whether it's scuds or whether it's artillery pieces, hiding them under camouflage netting, hiding them under bridges, hiding them in all sorts of locations that essentially airborne reconnaissance struggles to find them. You know, this is a problem that dates back to the jungle canopy of Vietnam, and it continues right the way through. And the CIA is given the job of helping the United States. If air power is gonna be the new tool of enforcement, for this kind of new world order or Pax Americana, whatever it's going to be labeled as, they need to find the targets. And Wolsey is, I mean, it's great that you mentioned him. Wolsey is a science and tech guy, right? It's his, his background. It doesn't go down well with the traditional human intelligence in the CIA, but he very much sees science and technology as a solution here. And he actually has a memory of Abe Kareem, that Kareem had been involved in a bidding process for long endurance drones that might well be a form of delivering nuclear weapons that had been a project in the later years of the Cold War. And obviously, the end of the Cold War had meant these things had never come to fruition. But Wolsey remembered Kareem and his capabilities. And so the CIA makes contact with General Atomics about the use of these drones as a tool to perhaps fill this intelligence gap something between satellites and low flying aircraft that are at risk of being shot down. So you can fly at a low altitude, but you can avoid the fact that they know when satellites orbit. You can stay in the air for bad cloud cover and wait for that to pass. And you can run the risk of being shot down because ultimately they're unmanned. And so this is how the CIA ends up back into the drone business, not for hunting terrorists, but for hunting tanks and artillery and scud launchers, And they go through a various kind of evolution here from some very basic connections with quite poor resolution cameras and long lags. The initial version actually requires a aircraft to connect between the ground control station and the drone. But gradually, by the time it gets to Kosovo in 1999, this technology has evolved into being what we would recognise as the kind of satellite-connected, high-resolution camera, high-endurance drone that is the Predator. And it's actually the Air Force that makes the first moves here to try to close the gap between this being something that guides aircraft to put missiles onto a target using laser guidance to something that could itself put the missile on the target. That brings it in line with those early 1980s CIA ideas that a drone could be a platform for delivering a missile, but it's the Air Force that actually moves forward with that technology.
2: See, that's really interesting. So the drone becomes part of the story of the perfectly precise wars of Kosovo. The perfect war. I remember a quote by Wesley Clark, who was Supreme Allied Commander Europe, and he he said that... um, Couples walked along the Danube and dined at sidewalk cafes as the bombardment went on around them, because American missiles were so precise that civilians just didn't need to worry. Now, in reality, that that certainly wasn't the case, and loads of mistakes did take place, including the bombing of the Chinese embassy. But drones are part of that narrative that they can help make war perfect. They can make it so you can hit the target with this perfect Precision, And so it makes sense that you start to develop them hand in hand as we move from the 90s into the 2000s. But I was with the US Air Force over the summer and a former drone pilot who will remain nameless said to me that he believed that the first idea, the reason why they really wanted to arm these drones was because they had a predator over Osama bin Laden in 2000 and it wasn't armed. And by the time they'd taken the drone back and tried to, you know, you fit it with some sort of armed system, you know, Bin Laden would have been gone. So they knew at this point, so they didn't miss that opportunity ever again, that they had to start thinking
3: about arming these systems. Is that true? It is true, but there's a couple of steps before that. So the tool that the Clinton administration is using, really, and it's a completely inappropriate tool for the job, is cruise missiles. So they know where Osama Bin Laden is, and they are aware that he is a significant threat, and his organisation poses a significant threat. And that becomes even more clear in 1998, when al-Qaeda bombs two American embassies in Africa, and then in 2000, when they bomb an American warship, the USS Cole, indeed. And the problem they have... So Clinton asks the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, can we send and he uses this phrase, he describes joint special operations as ninja guys in black suits, right? And he said, can we send some of these ninja guys in black suits to deal with Al-Qaeda? This is a real clear sign of why it is after 9-11, it's the CIA that is first into Afghanistan and it takes the Pentagon some time. And this is one of the reasons Rumsfeld fires off a load of memos saying, you know, why is it the CIA? Why aren't we there? And, you know, eventually, JSOC builds up into this kind of Praetorian Guard that it is now, well, it's because they're simply not really accepting this mission. Not only have you had this Eagle Claw disaster that I mentioned earlier, you know, their first kind of mission, well, the next time JSOC's really deployed en masse is what eventually descends into the Battle of Mogadishu. You know, again, small forces, helicopters, fast insert, special forces, and they end up bogged down and in this asymmetric warfare with hundreds of Somali casualties, American casualties are taken here as well, and images. And dragged through the streets. I mean, it's a PR disaster, Black Hawk down. Precisely. So then within within a matter of years of that, you have Clinton saying, can we send these forces into Afghanistan? The problem here is this is going to have to be, it's only going to be helicopter insertion. They have no real plan for this. It's believed that Bin Laden is down in Tarnak Farm, down in the south of Afghanistan. So no easy route in and out. The Taliban are not reliable uh, allies for the United States. It's not clear exactly how, far they, how hard they would fight to protect Bin Laden, but they're quite confident there would be resistance. So ultimately, the Pentagon is refusing it. You're back to that situation in the 1980s where they want to counter terrorists, but they can't use special forces to do it. And so, again, because they can't authorize an assassination, and there's various findings that Clinton signs where he's very careful with his language, making it clear that he is not authorizing. He does use proxy forces and authorize them to go get bin Laden, but he's very careful with the language to make clear that he isn't to be killed. And bin Laden is surrounded by his family, there are children, there are women in this farm. So, you know, any raid is going to be very, very high risk, high risk of collateral damage, high risk of embarrassment. So his language is constantly very vague. And, you know, the 9-11 Commission points this out. He never gives clear endorsement of what these missions are to be. But what they do find in the middle is that they can fire cruise missiles. They're not assassination, but they are also not airstrikes. There's something in the middle. The problem is they're quite slow. By the time you put the coordinates in, you fire them up, you launch them, you have to warn the Pakistani authorities, because at this point there's high tension between Pakistan and India. You can't have them thinking this is a nuclear exchange. And of course, there's all sorts of suspicions about whether warnings that go to the Pakistani authorities make their way to the Taliban and or Al-Qaeda. So it's not a very effective tool. And it requires the Navy to have a submarine on station, ready to launch these at all times. And this is incredibly expensive and a really inefficient use of Navy resources. And so it's actually Navy intelligence that suggests to the CIA, at the time, Assistant Director of Central Intelligence for Intelligence Collection, Charles Allen, they suggest to him, look, there are these predator drones, and you could use one of these instead, right? You could fly one of these over, and we don't have to keep a submarine here, and we don't have to lob cruise missiles, at a guy in a tent. And it just so happens that Charles Allen was on the original hostage locating task force in the CTC in the 1980s. So this idea of using a drone to hunt down a terrorist would not have been uh, new to Charles Allen. He was there in the 1980s. He survives Iran Contra because he arrives a little bit later and he's not there in Latin America, but he's one of the few survivors of the CTC from the 1980s, and so there's this direct connection here that we can trace right the way through. Once this suggestion is made, the CIA happily adopts the idea of a drone, and that's where we get to your point, James. They do indeed film Bin Laden, and there are apparently two recorded incidents of this happening. They believe it's him because of the length of the shadow and his height, you know, Bin Laden's a very tall individual, and it's unarmed. And so then the race is on to try to arm this weapon. But that in itself kicks up some of those original difficult issues around ideas of assassination. And that's what creates the delay. It's not just because doing this is technologically difficult. It is. How do you find the right rocket? How do you put something on a very flimsy aircraft that's designed for high endurance, not for bearing weapons? But ultimately, it also creates a real tension between does this put the CIA back into the business of assassination? The director at the time, George Tennant believes that it does he says it would be a terrible thing for the CIA to be in control of this weapon, and it even it even raises issues around the non proliferation treaty. Is this seen as some new form of a cruise missile, which also ends up having to be negotiated with the State Department and uh, Richard Clark, and they have to make clear why it isn't. In, in the end, they say it's got landing gear, right? A cruise missile can't have landing gear. It can't be a missile. That's ultimately the, the legal argument they use. But all of these factors end up creating the delay that means that that missile isn't strapped to this until after 9-11. And then, of course, after September 11th, any of these legal arguments just become completely overwhelmed. They're minute. Who cares who pulls the trigger now? Just get this thing up in the air and get it working.
2: So they cut out bureaucracy, they cut out political indecision, they cut out risk, they cut out the high financial cost, and they cut out that democratic involvement in the decision-making of whether or not the United States should be using taxpayers' money to fire missiles to assassinate people on the other side of the world. These are all the things that make drones the perfect weapon, whether you like it or not, for this cost-free idea of remote warfare, something that has been at the top of debates within policy circles, academic circles, and within human rights groups for the last 20 years, and something that maintains at the top of those agendas today. To close us out, Chris, you've got to give us some details of that first drone strike. When did it take place? When was it that the Hellfire missile was put on the Predator to take out a terrorist target?
3: So the first recorded drone strike that we know of, takes place on the opening night of Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. And its target is actually the Taliban's spiritual leader at the time, Mullah Omar. And in fact, it's the precision and the capability that a predator allows that leads to that strike not being successful in in an attempt to demonstrate what they're able to do because Mullah Omar had been identified as being in a building, what the CIA's drone operators uh, did was they fire a missile outside the building and destroy a vehicle with the view being to force them out of the building so that they can more precisely target uh, Mullah Omar and not hit the building, which they know has uh, civilians in it as well. But after the missile is fired, It's so in breach of the established chain of command for air power that night that the backlash that it creates, the fallout, who the F just fired that, that comes across the communications, essentially means that the second missile, the follow-up missile, is not fired and Mullah Omar is able to escape into the night. So it's not actually a glorious first mission. What it highlights straight away is competition with who owns this thing, who authorizes these strikes? it straight away shows that the CIA is operating in a, its own space here as it does continue to to this day you, you know you have an Air Force drone program, you have a joint special operations drone program, and you have a CIA drone program but it's not long after that the the second major drone strike really and the one that probably bears more in relation to what the CIA's drone program becomes, takes place shortly after in Yemen. And the reason I say this one is really more what we should consider is that that first one takes place in a war zone and is not really all that controversial other than the chain of command issue. The second one takes place in Yemen and targets a suspected al-Qaeda member. So it's outside of a war zone. It's covert. The details are not Release The reason we know about it is eventually uh, Paul Wolfowitz shares these details, but the CIA does not. There is no official account of this. It's just a... And Paul Wolfowitz is the undersecretary of defence at this point? He is. And he shares this information to try to show that the United States has this capability to reach out and touch somebody anywhere. But actually, the CIA is pretty furious about it, because not only does it reveal their covert programme, but it creates tension with the, the Yemeni government. But the reason I I identify that strike is it it has all of the features that really are the controversial elements of a CIA drone strike. A suspected al-Qaeda individual outside of a war zone covertly hit and killed while travelling in a vehicle. Well, Chris, I feel like we've
2: just started with this history. So we're going to have to get you back on to give us all of the rest of the CIA drone programme history from that moment of 9 11 through to today and all of the controversies that you say have been kicked up over those last two decades but thank you so much for your time for taking us through the history from the Reagan administration it's not often that I can say that I've learned something new about the drone program and drone history and I've learned lots new today I didn't even know that Gaddafi was targeted by the CIA and this this fledgling drone program in the 80s so thank you so much for your time Chris and tell us where can we read more about this history where can we buy your book
3: so my book is called See It, Shoot It, which is a, a Richard Clark quote. This is what he called the arming of a drone. It would give a see it, shoot it option. So see it, shoot it, the secret history of the CIA's lethal drone program. And it's at Yale University Press. And I'm sure you can buy it all over the place.
2: You can buy it everywhere and we'll put a link in our show notes. Chris, thank you so much for your time. And we're going to get you back on the Warfare podcast.
3: Great. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening.
2: But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at historyhitww2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes.